I know it's Easter Sunday. I know I'm going to preach the resurrection. But tonight we're going to go to Genesis 45. Genesis 45. And we're obviously breaking into a rather long story regarding Joseph and his brothers and his father. Verse 1 of Genesis 45. Then Joseph could not restrain himself before all those who stood by him. And he cried out, Make everyone go out from me. So no one stood with him while Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud, and the Egyptians in the house of Pharaoh heard it. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Does my father still live? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed in his presence. And Joseph said to his brothers, Please come near to me. And so they came near. Then he said, I am Joseph your brother, whom you sold into Egypt. But now do not therefore be grieved or angry with yourselves, because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For these two years the famine has been in the land, and there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. And God sent me before you to preserve a posterity for you in the earth, and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So now it was not you who sent me here, but God. And he has made me a father to Pharaoh, and lord of all his house, and a ruler throughout all the land of Egypt. Hurry, and go up to my father and say to him, Thus saith your son Joseph, God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me and do not tarry. And you shall dwell in the land of Goshen. And you shall be near to me, you and your children and your children's children, your flocks and your herds and all that you have. There I will provide for you, lest you and your household and all that you have come to poverty, for there are still five years of famine. And behold your eyes and the eyes of my brother Benjamin, See that it is my mouth that speaks to you. So you shall tell my father of all my glory in Egypt and of all that you have seen, and you shall hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell on his brother Benjamin's neck and wept, and Benjamin wept on his neck. Moreover, he kissed all of his brothers and wept over them, and after that his brothers talked with him. Now the report of it was heard in Pharaoh's house, saying, Joseph's brothers have come. So it pleased Pharaoh and his servants well. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, Say to your brothers, Do this. Load your animals and depart and go to the land of Canaan. And bring your father and your households and come to me. And I will give you the best of the land of Egypt. And you will eat the fat of the land. Now you are commanded, do this. Take carts or wagons, as the King James says, out of the land of Egypt for your little ones and your wives. And bring your father and come. And also do not be concerned about your goods, for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. Then the sons of Israel did so. And Joseph gave them carts or wagons according to the command of Pharaoh. And he gave them provisions for the journey. And he gave, all, he gave to all of them, to each man, changes of raiments, garments. But to Benjamin he gave 300 pieces of silver and five changes of garments. And he sent to his father these things, ten donkeys loaded with the good things of Egypt, and ten female donkeys loaded with grain and bread and food for his father and for the journey. 
And so he sent his brothers away and they departed. And he said to them, See that you do not come become troubled along the way. And then they went up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan, to Jacob their father. And they told him, saying, Joseph is still alive, and he is governor over all the land of Egypt. And Jacob's heart stood still, because he did not believe them. But when they told him all the words which Joseph had said to them, and when he saw the wagons which Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of Jacob their father revived. Then Israel said, It is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. Amen. Joseph, sorry, Jacob was an old man now. And for the past 20, 22 years, he had lived in mourning for the loss of his beloved and favorite son, Joseph, whom he believed to be dead. Life seemed very cruel and hard. Uh, there was famine in the land, and so lack and poverty was everywhere around him. And in chapter 43, he sent his sons into Egypt to buy bread. And to cut a long familiar story short, uh, whenever they got there, that Joseph eventually, bit by bit, revealed himself to them uh, through very moving and very touching encounters. And then in chapter 45 that we've just read, Joseph sends them back to old Jacob uh, to invite him to come back to Egypt and, of course, to live with him there. And so they came back to Jacob and reported all that they saw and all that they heard. But Jacob's heart fainted, for he believed them not. After all, Joseph is dead. Had he not seen with his own eyes that beautiful coat of many colors that he had made that was dripping with his blood, where he was being mauled apart by wild animals? He saw that. Surely Joseph is dead. And besides that, even if he wasn't, I mean, it's been 22 years and there has not been one sight or one sound of Joseph in over two decades. But suddenly, Joseph, alive, the prime minister of Egypt, lord in another land, ruler in another realm, commander of another country, impossible. It couldn't be. It's just too good to be true. And why, if it was true, well, that would certainly change all of our lives forever. So it says in verse 26, Jacob's heart fainted, for he believed them not. He just couldn't get his head around it, as we would say. It just seemed too far-fetched. But what changed his mind? What revived his heart? What caused him to believe at the last? Verse 27 and 28. And when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of Jacob, their father, revived. And Israel said, It is enough. Joseph, my son, is yet alive, and I will go and see him before I die. Once he saw those stately, 
regal royal wagons. He was totally convinced. Only Joseph would have sent those. Only Joseph could have sent those. Only Joseph would have cared enough to send those. And so now he declares, Joseph is alive. Now this is a little picture of you and me and the Lord Jesus Christ. He, Christ, sent us his wagons. And once we saw his wagons, once he revealed his wagons to us, we were absolutely convinced that Jesus is alive. Say, David, what were his wagons? First of all, the wagon of his grace and his mercy. Once we finally saw for ourselves his grace and his mercy, once it dawned on us, once we began to realize that all that he went through was for us personally, that all of that suffering on the cross of Calvary, all of that torture, all of that horrible death that he died, it was for you and it was for me, it was for us. And while man meant the cross for evil, God actually meant it for good. Joseph is a type of Jesus. The cross was man at his worst, but it was God at his best. We certainly didn't deserve his grace and his mercy and his forgiveness. Joseph's brothers certainly didn't deserve his grace and mercy and forgiveness. But once we, like Joseph's brothers, once we saw his great heart of love and forgiveness and mercy, we too were convinced Jesus is alive. What a wagon grace and mercy is. And it will carry us right to Christ. And then there's the wagon of his provision. Did you notice? Corn, bread, meat, silver, garments. Speaks of his infinite riches, his incalculable wealth. My God, Paul says to the Philippian church, shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. Paul speaks in Ephesians of the unsearchable riches of Christ. Peter speaks of the exceedingly great and precious promises that by these we might become partakers of the divine nature. What a provision! Wagons loaded. And when he saw the provision, only Joseph could have prepared that for them. Jesus is the bread of heaven, isn't he? He's the water of life. He clothes us in the garments of His righteousness. <laughs> and He causes us to wear the garments of praise for the spirit of heaviness. And all of our needs is supplied according to His riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Psalmist said, I have never seen the righteous forsaken, nor his seed begging for bread. Aren't you glad tonight that God is all the supplier of everything that we need in this life? for body, mind, and soul. 
if we can but trust him. He is the one who provides. Oh, he has many channels and avenues that he does that through. But if they break down and they are no more, then we have to look up and say, God, you're the provider. You have the supply. You have all that I need for this life and for all eternity. And then there is the wagon of his church. Christ's church is an Trying to get the word right. Incontrovertible. Oh, forget the word. <laughs> you know, I said that a thousand times and got it right every time. Christ's church is one of the greatest signs that we have that he is still alive today and that he is moving mightily across the face of the earth. The explosive growth of the church worldwide is astonishing. Now, you wouldn't think that if all you looked at the statistics of church attendance in Great Britain and the Western world, including America, because it's going down. Every year it's getting worse. But if you go beyond the Western world and you go into Africa and you go into Asia or you go into Korea or you go into China or you go into Indonesia and you go into all these other places, you'll see the church is exploding with growth. They can hardly contain it. So the church of Jesus Christ is still very much alive on planet earth and it's growing daily. And this is a great sign that Jesus is indeed alive. Down through the years, men have sought to destroy the church, to deny the church, to lay it waste. The Roman Empire tried and failed. The mighty Roman Empire couldn't crush Christianity. Judaism couldn't defeat it. Communism for years has tried and has failed. Atheism has tried and failed. Islam is still trying, and they too will surely fail. It is doomed to failure, because Jesus says, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall never prevail against it. The church of Jesus Christ is on the rise, and no devil or no demon in hell can stop it. <laughs> Glory to God. And it's a great sign that Jesus is alive. Do you realize today that there are more people worshiping Christ right now than has ever been in the history of this world. In 2,000 years in Christianity, there's more people today worshiping Jesus. Reckon there's some 2 billion Christians alive today. Can you imagine that? And growing all the time. So let's not think the church is a kind of a weak, watery, feeling, dying out business. That's what you'd think in Britain. But it's not a worldwide scene. And so we have the wagon of his church. And then we have the wagon of his word. Did you notice in verse 40, chapter 45? And it's verse 20. Well, let's read 21 and 22. Then the sons of Israel did so, and Joseph gave them wagons according to the command of Pharaoh, and he gave them provisions for the journey. 
He gave to all of them, each man, changes of raiment, but to Benjamin he gave 300 pieces of silver and five changes of garments. And he sent to his father these things, ten donkeys and so forth. And then they went up into see the father. And in verse 26 they said, Joseph is still alive and he's governor over all the land of Egypt. Now he struggled to believe that. But whenever they told Jacob of all the things that Joseph had said and when he had seen the carts that he had sent, then he was absolutely convinced that he was and is alive. Verse 27, But when they told him all the words which Joseph had said to them, and when he saw the wagons which Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of Jacob their father revived. And he said, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. Once we saw that his word was irrefutable, that it was undeniable, that it was infallible, that it was inerrant, then we too are absolutely convinced that our Joseph that Jesus, our Lord, is still alive and that he is ruler in another realm, that he's commander in another country, that he's Lord in another land and absolutely nothing can shake that belief. Aren't you glad for this book? Aren't you glad for God's word tonight? I mean, this is what we base our whole lives on. No wonder the enemy of our souls try to fight it and tries to destroy it. Psalm 100 verse 5 says, His truth endures to all generations. Jesus said in Matthew 24 that His word, His own word, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall never pass away. <laughs> so therefore we can trust it and we can count on it. Did you ever notice how when they come to talk about the age of the universe and all these things, do you ever notice how many times they change their mind? I mean, recently now they're coming out and they've added a few more millions or billions of years onto it. It's just all guesswork. It's just all totally, and it'll keep changing. But this book doesn't change. God doesn't change. He's the unchanging changer. And this is why we're better trusting what God says than what man says. Because man's ever going to change his mind, but God's not going to change his mind. What he has written, he has written. It's here for us. And then there is, of course, the wagon of his resurrection. Jacob was convinced that his son was dead. He hasn't seen him yet. Not with his eyes, but he has all the proof that he needed. He'd heard all the words that he said, and he saw all the wagons that he sent. And that was all the proof that he needed. For him to declare without seeing him yet, he said, Joseph, my son, is alive. He had eyewitnesses to the event. His brothers were eyewitnesses. They saw Joseph face to face. Now, we weren't there on that resurrection morn, but we have all the proof that we need. 
because we have his word and we have eyewitnesses. The two Marys at the tomb on resurrection morning. Then over a period of time, Acts chapter 1, he showed himself alive by many infallible proofs. All of the eleven saw him. And then the apostle Paul saw him, one born out of due season. And then when he went to 1 Corinthians 15, Paul declares that five hundred people saw him after his resurrection. Eyewitnesses, testimony that this was true. And so we can count on that. Of course, when we speak of the resurrection of Jesus, as I said this morning, we're talking about the very heart of all of the preaching of the apostles in the early church. I mean, that was right at the very core of all that they taught and all that they preached. That was the game changer for them. That was the thing that absolutely changed them. They were broken people. They were disillusioned. They were hurt. They were afraid. <laughs> they had given up. But Jesus rose again. And suddenly, new life came in. New courage rose up. And suddenly, they were ready to go again. Picking up the call. What a wonderful thing that Christ rose again from the dead. Let me give you just tonight, quickly, a few reasons why God raised him from the dead. God raised him from the dead for our justification. Romans 4.25 says, Who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised for our justification. What does that mean? Well, in Romans chapter 3, it tells us something here. Verse 21. Now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ, to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Being justified freely by His grace, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by His blood or a toning sacrifice by His blood through faith to demonstrate His righteousness, because in His forbearance God passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time His righteousness that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Why did God do all of this? Why did He let His Son come to this earth? Why did He let His Son die on that cross? Why did He raise Him up again from the dead? to demonstrate His righteousness and His justice so that He can be the only one who can justify those who put their trust in His Son, Jesus. Let me just try to explain that a little bit. Why wasn't enough for men just to simply say sorry to God? Why was that not enough? Why did it take Jesus to come and have to die? Why did God just not have it so that all we had to do was simply just repent and say, sorry God, I'm sorry, please forgive me, 
and that would be the end of it. But would that be justice? What if there's a lot of wars going on over the world tonight, all skirmishes and within different nations? What if some of these dictators that are responsible for the deaths of hundreds of thousands of people, maybe even millions in some cases in history, what if they were standing before the court of human justice said the Hague? And what if they stood up and said, do you know what? I'm very sorry. I got it wrong. Forgive me. I promise you I will never ever do it again. What kind of justice would accept that and let them off? We would say that's no justice. They deserve punishment. And they do deserve punishment for their sins. And we deserve punishment for our sins. For God to be just, He would have to punish sin. Because God is perfect, and God is holy, and God is righteous. And when we sin against Him, sin has to be punished. And the wages of sin is what? It's death. But because He loves us, He doesn't want us to die for our sins. He doesn't want to punish us for our sins. He wants to, the price to be paid for sin. He wants the punishment for sin to be paid. But we couldn't pay it. We're not able to pay it. So what does he do? He sends his son in our place, in our stead, to pay the penalty for our sins. That he, the just, may be the justifier of the unjust. The only way that he, the just, could be the justifier of the unjust, which is us, is to send somebody to die in our place as punishment for our sins. And that's why he sent the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is where mercy triumphs over judgment. Aren't you glad for that tonight? That mercy triumphs over judgment. And so God raised him from the dead for our justification. God raised him from the dead to prove his deity. In Romans 1 verses 3 and 4, Concerning his son Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness, note this, by the resurrection from the dead. God raised him from the dead to prove his deity. And I'll read about David. But weren't there other people raised from the dead? Jesus is recorded three times he raised people from the dead. But Jesus' resurrection was different than anybody else's. And I've mentioned this to you on several occasions. And it's good to be reminded because everyone, even that Jesus raised from the dead, died again. But when Jesus rose from the dead, he rose from the dead never to die again. He rose in the power of an endless life. And as I said to you before, they had a resurrection, but Jesus, he was a resurrector. He wasn't just resurrected. He had the resurrection life in him. 
He had the power to be alive forever and forever and forever. Lazarus, as much as it was wonderful, he came out of that grave, but one day he went back into it again. As wonderful it was as that little damsel, he spoke and rose from that deathbed, wonderful as that is, but one day later she died. As wonderful it was that young man going along the road, and they were carrying him on the bier, as it were, and he touched it and he got up and lived. As much as that is wonderful, but all of them died. But when Jesus rose again, he rose never to die no more. Because he was and he is the Son of God. And he has the power within himself to raise the dead. Because the resurrection life is in him. Concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh, declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. The resurrection is so, so important to all that we believe. If we lose that pearl, then the whole necklace of all the spiritual truths that we know will begin to unravel. And this is why Satan fights it so much. It's amazing how many of the bishops in the Church of England doesn't believe the resurrection. I mean, it's a massive percentage does not believe in the physical resurrection of Jesus. They believe in a spiritual resurrection, but not the physical resurrection. But the true believer believes that Jesus rose again from the dead physically, bodily. What better evidence that he was the Son of God than to come out of that grave to die no more and to have the keys of death and hell itself. Glory to God. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, he says. God raised him from the dead to be the head of the church. Paul speaks in Ephesians 1, says, What is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power which he worked in Christ when, when he raised him from the dead? and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he's put all things under his feet and gave him to the behead over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. He is the head, we are the body. Aren't you glad that Jesus is the head tonight? That he is in control the head speaks of authority. And all authority was invested in him by the Father. What a wonderful head we have got of the church tonight. It's not a man. It's not a denomination. It's not an organization. It is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. His body then, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And we have been seated in heavenly places with him. Glory to God. God raised him from the dead to be the head of the church. God raised him from the dead that we may walk in the power of a new life. Romans 6, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall all be shall we certainly we shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Did you get that? I told you earlier, when Jesus rose again from the dead, it was different than anybody else ever rising from the dead. 
And when you rise from the dead, when you rise from the grave, you'll rise to die no more. <laughs> and you too will live in the power of an endless life. And the Bible says in another passage that we will have a body like his glorious body. Isn't that wonderful? You know, there's something sad and mournful about a human being who's lived in this earth and then they die and we put them into the ground. But if you're a believer, if you're born again of God's Spirit, that's not the end, thank God. And that's why every funeral service a pastor preaches that of, over the grave of a believer, he has that hope within him that that is not the end. That the resurrection's coming. Glory to God. And what a joy that's going to be. Can you imagine perfect hearing, perfect sight, never an ache, never a pain. When I get out in the bed in the morning, it takes me a wee while now because the ankles is a bit stiff. The knees is a bit stiff. So you have to kind of psych yourself up a little bit. You know, 30 years ago, you just jumped out of bed. You thought you were in springs. And now the springs have sprung. And I have to get up slowly. And you have to kind of move yourself a little bit in sections to make sure all parts are working for the day. <laughs> These young ones are laughing, but that day, if you live long enough, believe me, trust me, it'll come too. I said to somebody the other day, I used to bound, you see those 21 steps? I used to bound up three or four at a time. And now I just walk nicely up and hold the banister. <laughs> but what a joy it's going to be when you're full of strength and full of health and full of life and your mind is alive, it's alert and you're never tired, you're not weary, you're not sleepy, you'll never be bored. What a wonderful, glorious future is for the believer. Isn't it wonderful? Isn't it great? This past couple of weeks, Sally there, her, uh, we come out of the, the NE at the Mater there hospital at 2 o'clock on Saturday morning. He's 95 and this past few weeks he hasn't been well and he's been falling and couldn't get up and from his bedroom. And, you know, he's just, he's just getting old, you know. He's 95 and uh, everything's beginning just to, to wear out. <laughs> Some age, isn't it, 95? But one day, one day, when we get to the glory and we get the body that's like unto his glorious body. And it's just inexplicable, isn't it? Remember Jesus just walked right through the walls and just appeared in the room with the disciples? Didn't even need to use the door. Say, so, well, we have a body like that. Well, very possibly. Very possibly. That's what we'll be able to do. I don't know how we're going to do it, but God's God. He can do anything, can't he? Hmm. God raised him from the dead that you and I might be raised from the dead. Romans 8 and 11. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Jesus says, because I live, you shall live also. See, there's a wonderful, wonderful promise. That death and the grave does not end it. And the promise is, and the proof is, that because God raised his son from the dead, he's going to raise us by the spirit that lives in us. 
Glory to God. Isn't that wonderful? In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul here is mentioning again and again, in fact, every chapter, at the end of every chapter, he talks about the second coming of Christ in 1 Thessalonians. There's five chapters, every single one of them. And so they were concerned. They were concerned about those who have already died asleep in Christ. What's going to happen to them if Christ comes? So he writes, verse 13 of 1 Thessalonians 4, But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, as those who have died in Christ, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For with this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout and with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. What a promise. What a comfort that because he rose from the dead, we shall also be raised from the dead. That is, unless we go in the rapture. I'm still old-fashioned enough to believe in the rapture. (laughs) And I don't care who doesn't, I do. Glory to God. Unashamedly, I believe in the rapture. And then we're almost finished. God raised him from the dead that he might be the baptizer in the Holy Spirit. In Acts 2, 32 and 33, this Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses, therefore being exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you both see and hear. God raised him from the dead that he might be the baptizer in the Holy Spirit. Remember John said that he was the one who who came, who was coming, that would baptize in the Holy Ghost? Hmm? He's the baptizer in the Holy Spirit. In John chapter 14, Two quick passages of Scripture. John 14 and in John 16. In John 14, (coughs) verse 15, If you love me, keep my commandments, and I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. And then in John 16, 
Verse 5, But now I go away to him who sent me. And none of you ask me, Where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper, now we're talking about the Holy Spirit, the Helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. Jesus is promising here to his disciples. He said, listen, I know you're going to miss me in the flesh. But actually, it's far better that I go because when I go, and only if I go, then I will send my Holy Spirit. I will send the Helper, the Advocate, one just like me. And this one will not just be with you, but he shall be in you. Hmm. Jesus is the baptizer in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who baptizes us into the body of Christ but Christ is the one who baptizes us in the Holy Spirit. And what a blessing that is. God raised him from the dead that he might be a prince and a savior. Acts 5. The God of her fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. Him God has exalted to his right hand to be prince and to be savior. What wonderful titles is afforded to our Lord Jesus Christ. Aren't you glad he rose again from the dead tonight? And then finally, God raised him from the dead to be our intercessor and our advocate. This is why Paul writes in Romans 8, 34, Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Jesus, when he rose again from the dead and he went to the glory and he seated at the Father's right hand, entered into that wonderful ministry of intercession for the saints. This is what he's doing right now, interceding for his church. Aren't you glad that Jesus prays for you? Hmm? Do you know that Jesus prays for you? He's our intercessor. He's our advocate in heaven. He's the one who stands between us and the accuser. That's wonderful. If somebody comes and rings you up or attacks you or sees you in church and says, do you know what? I just felt to pray for you this week. You were just on my heart and I just felt I just needed to pray for you. How does that make you feel? It makes you feel good, doesn't it? We're on Christ's heart all the time. And right now he has entered in behind that veil and he intercedes for us. How can we feel with such an intercessor, such an advocate? An advocate in heaven, an advocate on earth, the Holy Spirit or helper or advocate. How can we feel when Jesus is our intercessor and he is our advocate tonight? Eh? So aren't we glad for the resurrection that's only a few things. There's many more which we couldn't even begin to go into. But isn't it wonderful? Isn't it a great truth that Jesus is alive tonight? And when Jacob heard the words of Joseph and he saw the wagons that he had sent, he was absolutely convinced. Should he never have seen him? He was convinced 
He is alive. None of us has ever seen Jesus in the flesh that I know of. But we're absolutely convinced He's alive, aren't we? We've seen His words and we've seen His wagons. <laughs> Glory to God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this wonderful day. We bless you for the glorious resurrection. We thank you, Lord, that it changed everything. The church was born. The book of Acts was lived out. We bless you that there's millions, millions and millions and millions today that rise up and call you blessed. And we're all trusting and believing and having faith in the one who was risen from the dead. So we thank you for that wonderful and glorious moment when you burst forth from that grave. When the grave could no longer hold you and death and hell was defeated. And so we thank you that right now you have the keys of death and hell. That you are the Alpha and the Omega. You're the first and last. You're the beginning and the end. You're the author and you're the finisher of our faith. And we bless you tonight. So thank you for this great Easter Sunday in your presence. And may we go from here, Lord, into this week, Lord, of perhaps a few days rest and perhaps to work. And Lord, we pray that your presence and your Holy Spirit will be with us. And Lord, it will be great examples. And we'll be Christ-like with all that we meet. And Lord, it will be signpost to Jesus. So we give you thanks for this day in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.